leaders make mistakes. That's inevitable, so strikingly our Parsha implies. The real issue is how he or she responds to those mistakes. The point is made by the Torah in a very subtle way. Our Parsha deals with sin offerings to be brought when people have made mistakes. The technical term for this is shigaga, meaning inadvertent wrongdoing. You did something not knowing it was forbidden, either because you forgot or didn't know the law, or because you were unaware of certain facts. You may, for instance, have carried something in a public place on Shabbat, either because you didn't know it was forbidden to carry, or because you forgot that it was Shabbat. The Torah prescribes different sin offerings depending on who made the mistake. It enumerates four categories. First is the high priest, the second, the whole community, understood to mean the great Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. The third is the leader, the Nasi, and the fourth is an ordinary individual. In three of the four cases, the law is introduced by the word im, if, if such a person commits a sin. In the case of the leader, however, the law is prefaced by the word asher, when. It's possible that a high priest, the Supreme Court, or an individual may err. But in the case of a leader, it's probable or even certain. Leaders make mistakes. It's the occupational hazard of their role. Talking about the sin of the Nasi, the Torah uses the word when, not if. Now, Nasi is the generic word for a leader, ruler, king, judge, elder, or prince. Usually it refers to the holder of political power. In Mishnaic times, the Nasi the most famous of whom were leaders from the family of Hillel, had a quasi-governmental role as representative of the Jewish people to the Roman government. Rabbi Moses Sofer, the Chatam Sofer, in one of his responses, examines the question of why, when positions of Torah leadership are never dynastic, passed from father to son, the role of Nasi was an exception. Often it did pass from father to son. The answer he gives, and it's historically insightful, is that with the decline of monarchy in the Second Temple period and thereafter, the Nasi took on many of the roles of a king. His role, internally and externally, was as much political and diplomatic as religious. That, in general, is what's meant by the word Nasi. Now, why does the Torah consider this type of leadership particularly prone to error? The commentators offer three possible explanations. Ravavadya Sofono cites the phrase, but Yeshurun waxed fat and kicked in uh, towards the end of the book of Devarim. Those who have meaning, those who have advantages over others, whether of wealth or power, can lose their moral sense. Rabbeinu Bachia agrees, suggesting that rulers tend to become arrogant and haughty. Implicit in these commentators, in fact, it's an it's pretty much a theme of Tanakh as a whole, is the idea later stated by Lord Acton in the famous aphorism, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Rabbi Eli Munk, citing the Zohar, offers a second explanation. The high priest and the Sanhedrin were in constant contact with the holy. They lived in a world of ideas. The king, or political ruler, by contrast, was involved in secular affairs, war and peace the administration of government, and international relations. He was more likely to sin because his day-to-day -day concerns weren't religious, but pragmatic. Reb Simcha Cohen of Dvinsk points out that a king was especially vulnerable to being led astray by popular sentiment. Neither a priest nor a judge in the Sanhedrin were answerable to the people. 
The king, however, relied on popular support. Without that, he could be deposed. But this is laden with risk. Doing what the people want is not always doing what God wants. That, argues Reb Meir Simcha, is what led David to order a census and Zedekiah to ignore the advice of Jeremiah and rebel against the king of Babylon. So for a whole series of reasons, a political leader is more exposed to temptation and error than a priest or judge. There are further reasons, at least metaphorically. One is that politics is an arena of conflict. It deals in matters, specifically wealth and power, that are, in the short term, zero-sum games. The more I have, the less you have. Seeking to maximize the benefits to myself or my group, I come into contact with others who seek to maximize benefits to themselves or their group. The politics of free societies is always conflict-ridden. The only societies where there's no conflict are tyrannical or totalitarian ones in which dissenting voices are suppressed, and Judaism is a standing protest against tyranny. So in a free society, whatever course a politician takes, it will please some and anger others. For this, that from this there is no escape. Politics involves difficult judgments. A leader must balance competing claims, and sometimes he'll get it wrong. One example, perhaps one of the most fateful in Jewish history, occurred after the death of King Solomon. People came to his son and successor, Rehovah, complaining that Solomon had imposed unsustainable burdens on the population, particularly during the building of the temple. Led by Jeroboam, they asked the new king to reduce the burden. Rehovam asked his father's counselors for advice. They told him to concede to the people's demand. Serve them, they said, and they will serve you. Rehovam, however, turned to his own friends who told him the opposite. Reject the request. Show the people you're a strong leader who can't be intimidated. It was disastrous advice, and the result was tragic. The kingdom split in two. The ten northern tribes following Jeroboam, leaving only the southern tribes, generically known as Judah, loyal to the king. For Israel, as a people in its own land, it was the beginning of the end. Always a small people surrounded by large and powerful empires, it needed unity, high morale, and a strong sense of destiny to survive. Divided, it was only a matter of time before both nations, Israel in the north, then later Judah in the south, fell to other powers. The reason leaders, as opposed to judges and priests, can't avoid making mistakes is that there is no textbook that infallibly teaches you how to lead. Priests and judges can follow laws. For leadership, there are no laws because every situation is unique. As Isaiah Berlin put it, in the realm of political action, there are few laws and what's needed instead is skill in reading a situation. Successful statesmen do not, he says, think in general terms. Instead, they grasp the unique combination of characteristics that constitute this particular situation, this and no other. Berlin compares this to the gift possessed by great novelists like Tolstoy and Proust, implying inflexible rules to constantly shifting political landscape destroys societies. Communism was like that. In free societies, people change, culture changes, the world beyond a nation's borders does not stand still. So a politician will find that what worked for a decade or a century ago does not work now. In politics, it's easy to get it wrong, hard to get it right. 
There's one more reason why leadership is so challenging. It's alluded to by the Mishnah stage, Rabbi Nechemia, commenting on the verse, My son, if you have put up your security for your neighbor, if you have struck your hand in pledge for another. On this, Rabbi Nehemiah says, so long as a man is a chaver, an associate, that is, a private individual concerned only with personal piety, he needn't be concerned with the community and isn't punished on account of it. But once someone has been placed at the head and has donned the cloak of office, he may not say, I have to look after my welfare, I'm not concerned with the community. Instead, the whole burden of communal affairs rests on him. If he sees a man doing violence to his fellow or committing a transgression and doesn't seek to prevent him, he's punished on account of this. And the Holy Spirit cries out, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, meaning you are responsible for him. You, says Rabbi Nehemiah, have entered the gladiatorial arena, and he who enters the arena is either conquered or conquers. A private individual is responsible only for his own sins. A leader is held responsible for the sins of the people he leads, or at least those sins he might have prevented. With power comes responsibility, and the greater the power, the greater the responsibility. So, there may be no universal rules, there's no fail-safe textbook for leadership. Every situation is different, each age brings its own challenges. The Jewish approach to leadership is thus an unusual combination of realism and idealism. Realism in its acknowledgement that leaders inevitably make mistakes. Idealism in its constant subordination of politics to ethics, power to responsibility, pragmatism to the demands of conscience. What matters is not that leaders never get it wrong. That's impossible given the nature of leadership, but that they are always exposed to prophetic critique, that they constantly study terror to remind themselves of transcendent standards and ultimate aims. The most important thing from a terror perspective is that a leader is sufficiently honest to admit his mistakes, hence the significance of the sin offering. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zagai summed it up in a brilliant double entendre on the word asher, when asher, when a leader sins, he relates the word asher to ashrei, meaning happy. And he says, happy is the generation whose leader is willing to bring a sin offering for his mistakes. So leadership demands two kinds of courage, the strength to take a risk and the humility to admit when a risk fails.